Tonight's reading is from 1 Thessalonians, uh, it's chapter 3, but we're beginning to read in chapter 2, verse 17. And you can find that on page 1187. Page 1187, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But, brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short while, for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did, again and again. But Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory? in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. So let me uh, pray for us uh, before we look at the passage. Dear Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, you would open our ears to hear you speak to us. You would uh, enable us to open our hearts and our minds to receive you and to respond in obedience to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking uh, uh, again tonight at... uh, this letter from Paul to the Thessalonians, uh, from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Although as you read through, you can see that 
uh, as Paul is writing uh, on, on their behalf. Um, uh, when my mother died, I was left um, a whole bunch of photographs and documents, uh, and includes two letters, um, at least two. Uh, one of them was written by my father, my dad, to his parents during the Second World War. Uh, my father at that time was learning to fly aeroplanes in Canada, ha having flown in 30 missions as a crew member before that. Uh, and uh, he was writing to his parents who lived at that time in London. And if you know your history, you'll know that London was being bombed pretty well nightly during that time. And as I read the words of the letter, I could feel uh, the anxiety my dad had for his parents and his passion to get back to Britain again and to take his stand with the others in the struggle. So it's a very real letter addressing very real issues. Now this letter that we have just read part of is the same. It's in a very real letter addressing very real issues and concerns that faced this newly founded church in Thessalonica in this hostile environment. It's not an academic exercise, it's not a theory, this is reality, this is what happened. And as with my father's letter, you can feel Paul's passion and anxiety for these new Christians. He is anxious for them. He longs to get back to be with them. And in this letter, he opens up to them about what he really feels. He expresses his emotions and what he's thinking. Where the two letters differ is, of course, that my father's letter addressed issues which are now past their history. Paul's letter addresses issues that are as relevant today as they were then. So it is, in a very real sense, a letter to you and I, to us. And I hope you will be able to see that as we go through. So first thing I need to do is to set it in its context. So Paul had this sort of brief mission, really. It was cut short in Thessalonica. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that, but Thessalonica. Um, as in Philippi, uh, it had been a short um, mission, really. Uh, in Philippi, uh, opposition had sprung up against him and his message, and uh, he and Silas were... Uh, rounded up there, were stripped and beaten in a public place, which must have been both humiliating as well as very painful. They were thrown in prison and, uh, and then uh, miraculously released from prison, uh, but then uh, asked to leave uh, Philippi. And so in a similar sort of way, they come to Thessalonica, they, they start the church there, and, uh, but opposition uh, starts up. Some don't like the message he's preaching because it's changing people. It's a threat to them, like to Jews there. So they got a number of people together to demonstrate, to cause something of a riot, sort of like rent a mob. And um, it's a tactic which is used today still because you can, if you get a whole bunch of people and get them out on the street, make a lot of noise, throwing stuff, that it does get people's attention, and it did then. They're saying, look at the trouble these people are making. Although, of course, it was them that was making the trouble. And it got their attention. Legal charges were made. 
uh, not necessarily actually against Paul and Silas, but against the people who were looking after them there, the actual church itself. So Paul and Silas had to leave um, uh, the place. And, uh, and they left, uh, not just to um, safeguard their own mission, um, ministry and mission, but also for the sake of the people that they had been with, the, the, the young church there. Now the, the opposition now launches a smear campaign against them, saying these people have run away. Slightest bit of trouble, they, they leave you. They've not been heard of since. They don't care about you. They're only in it after power, money. They've abandoned you. Why do you hold on to this faith? So it's into that situation that Paul writes this letter. And so he speaks very openly and honestly with them about the anxiety he has for them. And in so doing, he addresses the criticisms, the misrepresentations that have been spread about those who opposed him and the message. So there are five things which uh, I want to point out to you that he says which rebuff that smear campaign but also teach us in soundings of five. And since I'm going to sort of go off on a little tangent every now and again, I'm going to try and work hard so you can see which, which of the five things. So I hope I don't lose you in doing that. Okay? First one. In verse 17, he was torn from them. It was not what he wanted. He didn't want to leave. He's not abandoned them, and his hope and prayer is that this will be for a short time only. And the words he uses, actually, are those which you might use for one who's been bereaved. He's been separated from them. And they themselves, if they could remember when he left, they would have known that he didn't want to leave. So he's been torn from them. It's not what he wanted. Secondly, that they have made every effort, again in verse 17, to see them, to get to see them. In fact, he says, it's their intense longing to do so, to get back. But they have been thwarted in doing that. Uh, I don't say how they've been thwarted. Maybe it is that Paul has been unwell. Maybe it is his concern for the Christians there that, that his return may cause trouble. We don't know. But what we do know is he says, but Satan stopped us. Now, I want to just have a look at that for a second because that may uh, raise questions in your head. It did with me, really. If this is Paul, uh, who's an apostle uh, and therefore given this particular ministry, uh, which is to reach the Gentiles, then how is it that God, has, that he says that Satan can thwart him so? He's actually stopped him getting back to the Thessalonians. It might make you think, you know, like some Christians seem to blame everything goes wrong on, on the devil. Is that, is that what it's about? But I want you to notice that Paul, in all of his writings, and here, never says that God is not in charge. God remains in charge. But the devil does mess with plans. You've probably experienced that yourself. What's the saying? The devil messes with the best laid plans. But God remains in charge and his purposes are not thwarted. 
I don't know about you, but I've often noticed that things which we think are things which have gone wrong, then somehow God uses those to actually bring good out of them. And maybe it is for this church, the fact that Paul didn't get to see them was what God used actually to strengthen them when they turned to their faith and to each other. So God's purposes are not thwarted. He remains in charge throughout. So, to get back, he longs to see them because for him, this new church, this bunch of new believers, are his joy, he says. They are to him like his own children. He's gone into this place, he's preached the gospel, and he's seen this small church receive the word with joy. Turn to Christ. He's seen God at work and using his ministry. So he longs to be back with them again, to see that they are holding on to the faith. They are his joy. So, two things then. Torn from them, he's made every effort to get back to them. Third thing, he sends Timothy to them. When, as he says, he can stand it no longer. 3 verse 1. That's a phrase he uses twice about stand it no longer. There is this agony in the separation from them, lacking any news of how they're getting on. And sending Timothy is not without a personal sacrifice. For he was in Athens, which is a place he calls this idolatrous city, where he is isolated. He could do with having Timothy's fellowship there. But he wants Timothy to go to encourage and to cheer this church. And, as he says here, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials the opposition, the persecution. Also, of course, so that Timothy could come back and tell him how this new church is getting on. So before we go now into uh, the news that he gets back and Paul's reaction to it, it's good to reflect about that for a second, the, the, op- the opposition. Um, Paul and these new Christians have met with some very real opposition to the message and to living out that message in their lives. People have tried all sorts of tactics to try and to stop them believing or sharing it. They've misrepresented them. They've lied about them. They've threatened them. They've raised charges against them. In other places, they laughed and ridiculed them for believing. They've suffered physical violence, Paul and Silas at least. But that is what Jesus himself experienced, isn't it? And that is what Jesus warned us would happen to us if we followed him. It's a warning that Paul repeats to these believers in verse 3 of chapter 3. It is also what I think we will experience. We should not be surprised, although I have to admit I nearly always am. If people are not pleased for us when we enthuse about our faith, not at all enthusiastic, rather disinterested, dismissive, derogatory even, sometimes just offensive. They would rather we abandoned what we believe, or at the very least keep quiet about it. And this opposition comes in all sorts of different forms and guises, but it always will be there for those who follow Christ until he returns. 
People feel far more comfortable with us, with us if we were cynical or if we were worldly, materialistic. Follow the current thinking. Jesus didn't warn us that this would happen for no reason. He wants us to be aware that it will and to be ready. But of course it's not all difficulties being a Christian. Not everybody will reject the message as we see here and as we see in our own lives. There is great joy in serving Jesus. Again, we see that from Paul's reactions and we find from our own experience, there is great, no greater thing than to know and to serve him. So Paul admits, <clears throat> this is verse 5, I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. Strong word to use that, useless. But if they now abandon the faith that they had received in the first place, then it counts for nothing. We have to hold on to our faith. And that's what really concerned him, that they would hold on to their faith. Okay, I've reached number four. So he says that he is overjoyed when he gets the news. So he hasn't not cared about them, he's overjoyed about it. And since the letter has been written just after the news had come back from Timothy, uh, that's what he says to them. I don't know whether uh, you've ever been in this position where you're desperate to hear news of somebody. Uh, perhaps that's happened to you. It has to me. Um, there's a small uh, example, really. I'm not very good at keeping in touch with people who've moved away. You know, I'm not uh, very good at that. And uh, uh, this couple had sent me uh, an email and... Uh, I'd spent a long time before I'd actually got around to replying to it and, and I knew that they could get upset if we didn't keep in touch with them. So I sort of rather nervously wrote them another email to apologise and say, you know, that I really wanted to see them uh, and to sort of explain. And then I had to wait anxiously to get a reply from them. I waited a week, waited two weeks and then I was overjoyed to get a really warm reply back from them saying they wanted to meet with us too. That's a hint, perhaps, of what Paul is feeling here. Um, so he's overjoyed about, verse 6, their faith and their love. And he doesn't hold back about how he's overjoyed about it. And what he finds from the news is that they did not think badly of him and rather that they have pleasant memories of him. How that must have gladdened his heart. Secondly, they long to see them, that they long to see him as well as he wanting to see them. They hadn't believed these lies that have been spread about him. That's brilliant news for Paul and he is more than just encouraged. Verse 8 he says, For now we rarely live since you are standing firm in the Lord. His life has been so bound up in theirs as they share the faith now he's given sort of something of a new lease of life by this great news uh, that they are continuing in their faith and love. Fifth point. He's been praying for them. He hasn't abandoned them. He's been praying for them. Night and day he's been praying for them. And even now in verse 11, he break, breaks out into prayer for them in, in the letter itself. You know, like some people break into song. Um, 
I've always found that mildly embarrassing myself. I never understood really musicals when people suddenly break into song. The <clears throat> anyway, just, just my thing. So, so he hasn't forgotten them. He's praying for them and he's praised for them now. And this is what he prays. He prays that he wants to visit them. He wants to see them face to face. Meeting with other Christians and talking about your faith, sharing and learning from the Bible together with others is so important if we are to hold on to our faith. As we've been seeing, and no doubt you have experienced, being a Christian can be very difficult. You will be opposed if you take this path. And you need the fellowship, the prayer and the support of others. You need to be able to talk to people about your faith and with people who understand what you're talking about. It's so important. Well, Paul's prayer was eventually answered and he did get back to see uh, the church in Thessalonica. So it was a few years later. So that's the first thing he's praying for. Second, that he prays that their love for each other will increase. Not more than that. He says not only increase, but overflow. And that the love, not for your own community, but overflow to everyone. Verse 12. Love has always been um, a feature and a mark of the Christian church. It's a great joy to see and to be part of it. Was then and has been down through the centuries love since Christ's gospel broke into the hearts of men and women. Though that's true, the media, it would seem, does its best to ignore that aspect of the Christian church and to deny it, even. I noticed uh, from Tim's sermon uh, last week that he spoke about Justin Bieber. I don't know what you think of him and his music. I mean Justin, not Tim. Um, uh, I'd noticed that music is very sort of factional. You know, I like this person, I don't like that person. Um, well, considering I reached 65 the other day, I probably shouldn't ever have heard of Justin Bieber, let alone have an opinion. But I did see him on the TV recently and he took part in a concert in Manchester following the bombing there. You may have seen it as well. A concert organised by Ariana Grande, who I definitely shouldn't have heard of. <laughs> but what really struck me about that concert and uh, the flow of feeling that's following the atrocity that uh, had led to it really, was that people knew uh, that the response uh, must be to love. We must not meet this with hate, but with love. Now, I very much admired that and uh, respect the sentiment that those who stood up and there declared in the face of violence, death and grief that they must love. But the question is, how do you do that? How do you maintain a love like that? Uh, how do we increase in love so that it overflows out to everyone? I was surprised and very encouraged that Justin Bieber chose that moment on stage in front of uh, thousands of people to declare that God is love. That was, is God's nature. Not the hate that was perpetrated in his name, but love. 
good for Mr. Bieber. So you could summarize now, now as I close, um, this uh, portion of the letter. What Paul's pastoral heart models for us and models for the church could be boiled down to two things. And you can see it in his concern and in what uh, has overjoyed him about this new church. Verse 6 it is, their faith and their love. It's a mark of a true pastor and it's a mark of a faithful church that it is truth and love. That they believe and hold on to the message of God. They trust in him. They hold to the truth that has been passed to them by the apostles. And that, the outworking of that, is that they love one another. Two things. A love like that which Paul here describes and those people in Manchester so bravely aspired to that lasts is born of a faith that lasts. It is by the Holy Spirit at work in us. So let me, like Paul, break into a prayer for us. And I'm looking at verse 13. It's a prayer for you and for me, that we will know and hold on to the truth, the gospel message we have received, and thereby increase in love for each other until... It overflows to everyone. So I pray. May he, that is Jesus, strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen.